We are back to our second week in our series, Death to Selfie. And if you'd like to, you can take your anti-selfie picture with our conveniently placed little um, uh, selfie thing. I'll demonstrate right here. I tried to show you last week. Beautiful, isn't it? Uh, you And essentially, uh, this whole series is about the really... Um, important truth that all of us have to come to grips with if we are going to be serious about following Christ, that there has to be a a point in time that we put to death our own ambition, our own pride, our own selfishness, and give it over to God. Um, If we are people that are just living for ourselves, it is contrary to a relationship with God. And in particular, it is really hard to even initiate a relationship with God if we're just completely consumed with ourselves. Because the act of coming into a relationship with God is really humbling ourselves and saying, God, I need you. I need your help. I need forgiveness. I, uh, I, I put my faith and trust in you. Forgive me. I can't do this alone. And so it's really essential if we're going to be serious about our, our relationship with God that we kind of put to death kind of the selfie culture and selfie world that we live in. And uh, there's no question about the fact that we live in a selfie world. We live in a world where we are a lot of times consumed with ourselves. This morning, I got a little fly buzzing around uh, my head. I don't know why that is, but... um, this morning, I was, uh, I was going over to our wonderful little um, donut and coffee area that I always participate in every Sunday morning, and I went over, and there was a beautiful, my favorite one, chocolate, chocolate, uh, breakfast something, bread. Um, it's, is, if you slice it the right way, you can count it for breakfast. I don't know how that works. It's pretty much a chocolate cake, but if you slice it kind of in the right form, you can do that and you can get away with it. And I, I went to grab the first one and I looked and I was like, it's the heel. Oh no, the heel, it ruins the whole experience. But no, I'm trying, I need to die to self. I'll eat the heel. So I ate the heel for you today because I'm trying to die to self. But in a serious note, don't we all, like, don't we all have to keep working at this? Don't we all have to keep working at, like, this idea of, you know, am I going to be controlled by just, just whatever I want? My, my, the materialistic things, the pride things. And last week we talked about comparison. But today, in spe- specifically, we're going to talk about pride. A lot of times we're fueled by pride. And sometimes it's a good thing. We take pride in our work. That's a good thing, right? Take pride in what you do. You're like, I'm going to do it right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honorable. I'm going to work hard. And I take pride in what I've accomplished. We take pride in like maybe our heritage, where we came from. We take pride, you know, kind of family history. And like, this is my story. This is, this is what like people have gone through. We take pride sometimes in, you know, our country. We're like, I take pride in that. And I'm proud of what has happened. We, sometimes... You know, probably the most important of all, right? We take pride in the Denver Broncos, right? Because we live in Colorado. And if you don't take pride in your local football team, the Denver Broncos, what in the world are you doing? Move to Kansas and cheer for the Chiefs on your own time. We're Broncos country here. No, but 
We take pride in things sometimes, and maybe, um, maybe uh, it, it is a good thing to take pride in certain things. But there's some time, some point in time, where there's a, where there's a shift, where it moves towards selfishness. And it's subtle, and it's difficult, but, but we have to think about this a little bit. We have, to, we have to investigate our motives a little bit further and think, am I in a place where, you know, the, the Bible describes where, you know, I'm arrogant or prideful. Um, I was uh, reading several things this week about uh, pride, and I came across an essay by Jonathan Edwards, and it was really struck me. He said this, it's by spiritual pride that the mind defends and justifies itself. In other areas, it defends itself against light, by which it may be corrected and reclaimed. The spiritually proud man thinks he's full of light already and feels that he does not need instruction. So he's ready to ignore the offer of it. So really, hard to grow if you are um, in this state. And he continues by saying, Humility clears the eye to look at things as they are. And uh, referencing Psalm 25, 9, he says, it le- He leads the humble in justice and teaches us his humble ways. So Jonathan Edwards, and he had a list, and um, I would put it on the screen for you, but uh, it's not available. He had, he had just kind of a list of different things that, that pride leads to, and I found it helpful. So I'll share it with you. It won't be my whole sermon, but I want to share it with you. But he said, you know, these are the things that spiritual pride leads to. It says, Fault finding. We start nitpicking other people. We start like looking at other people and saying, hey, look at look at this. Look at that. And lots of times this happens, you know, even friendly fire between uh, different religious or, or denominational groups, Christian groups. We're fault finding. We have a harsh spirit, like a harsh tone where we're we tend to like, you know, kind of have an edge to what we say instead of a generous spirit. We are, become superficial, and we begin uh, looking, you know, just kind of those outward things become more important than the inward things. Another thing that spiritual pride can lead to is defensiveness, because really pride in and of itself is masking a lot of times an insecurity, and it's masking the fact that, you know, like maybe we want to present ourselves to a world in, in a certain way, but... You know, maybe it's not really the truth. And so there's a defensiveness that comes in and saying, hey, get off my back. Don't listen to me. I don't want to listen to what anybody else has to say about me. And maybe uh, there's been times I've sat in sermons. I'm like, is he preaching at me? Is he talking about me? Maybe you've had that moment before in your life, too. My father was a pastor, so probably it happened. Most of the time it happened to me. It was about me. But um, but like if you've ever had like one of those moments where like. What? Are you, are you coming after me? Um, kind of that defensiveness where we're a little bit too touchy and we're not, we're not open to uh, hear something that may be challenging, challenge us. Presumption before God. Being the type of person that is kind of like approaches God maybe casually or, or approaches even their understanding of God too arrogantly. Presumption. Um, the sixth thing that Jonathan Edwards notes is desperate for attention. And people who are just like constantly wanting the praise, the acclaim, the credit for everything because 
they're really desperate for that. And they feed off of that. And then last, which is probably the worst, is neglecting others. Because the focus is on yourself. And so you can't really kind of put yourself in anybody else's shoes. You can't really get outside of your own interests and think about others. And we neglect others as a result. There's so many different things that result when there is this pride that emerges in our life. And it's true that we need to put these things to death. We need to put to death pride. The scripture says this over and over as well. And it would be really handy to have it on the screen, wouldn't it? You know, you know that Jonathan Edwards, he's so good. Wouldn't it be great if he was preaching here? It makes me so jealous. I wish I was like Jonathan Edwards. Um, now I'm insecure and I, I don't know, pride is coming in and I, never mind. All right, uh, Proverbs chapter 16, 5. It says this, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. It says pride, if you're a prideful person, there will be punishment that takes place. And as the other kind of scriptures talking about pride um, attest to, I think most often that is natural consequences that take place if you're a prideful person. There are that these things will happen and they won't go unpunished. Proverbs 16, 18 says this pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. So it's saying that this is a, a warning sign that more uh, that bad things are about to happen to you. Another verse, Proverbs eleven two. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Um, Proverbs thirteen ten. There is where there is strife, there is pride. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. Isn't that interesting? That wherever there is like drama, another way to put it, there is pride behind it. Isn't that so true? If we're like offended by, you know, something that is misspoken or something, it's really at the heart of it. It's our pride. But a humble person, normally it's a peaceful setting. But if we have a lot of pride, there is always strife. There's always almost this kind of macho need to get back or to get even when there is pride. Because there's always a scorecard that is going on behind the scenes where somebody needs to get back at another. And there's always that drama or strife. And then four, about four times in scripture... The scripture uses this phrase, and actually you could say that maybe about seven or eight times it says it in scripture in a little bit different way. But um, it's quoted two times in the New Testament where it says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. If there's a Bible verse that you could, should memorize, that is on the top of the list. Look at that. Look at those words. That's amazing. And it's over and over in Scripture. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but I don't want God opposing me. Anybody want God opposing you? Think, look at those words. But that's what it says. God opposes the proud. It's almost saying... That the people who are proud are not on God's side, and the people that are humble, 
God gives them grace. God gives them the benefit of the doubt in a way. But in more than that, it's saying God will be gracious with you. God will, God will, God will give you, you know, even like if you think about your prayers, as you're praying to God, when you come with a humble spirit and bowed knee and say, God, I need your help, God's grace shows up in abundance. But the people who say, I got this on my own, hands folded, opposed to any change, you're, you're going to be opposed. That is scary, scary territory. Think about that. And so... This is an important thing that we can talk about and something that, if we're honest, is in us a little bit in one form or another. So um, there's, there's a, a, a scripture that I want to look at, a story that is a little bit obscure um, uh, in scripture that, that kind of is something that is a picture that I think that we should try to strive for. And I think something that can be very relatable to us. There's, and I just want to kind of set the context of it. Um, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, as it was forming, really kind of had a pride moment. They had a, they had a moment that wasn't a good moment, but it really was something that impacted them for years and years to come. They, as they were initiating the nation of Israel, they demanded of God to have a king. And that was, that was a pride move. There's no question about it whatsoever. They wanted the status of what they saw in other places. Somebody that they say, that's the one in charge. That is the picture of who we are. You know, it's kind of weird in modern times where you, you, know, you, you hear stuff about like kings and queens. I'm like, really, we're still doing kings and queens? And we're still like... like the most popular show is still like a royal wedding. Like, who cares? But like, this is still important to people. And it's interesting, even in our culture, we're like, when there's like presidential debates, they're like, he looked presidential. What does that mean? It means like, like tall and well-spoken and a nice tie. I don't know what it means. Um, I don't fit any of those categories. So, um, but it's like, it's like we, there's something in us that wants us to say, look at what we are. Look at our king. And the nation of Israel kind of doubled down on this prideful moment in their selection of a king. And they were looking around they're like, who's the tallest, best looking person around? That's, that should be the king. And that's the first king of the nation of Israel, Saul. It seemed like that was... The primary criteria for him is he was tall. So that's a pride moment. A, na- a group of people that come and are going to be the representatives of God in the world that bring Jesus and, and God's kingdom to earth wants an earthly king so that they look good to their neighbors as they're establishing themselves. It's a pride moment. And that's uh, one of the early things that happened in the nation of Israel. And so the nation's pride leads them to having a king. And um, interestingly enough, the tide shifted away from Saul very quickly. And how did it uh, shift away from Saul? Ironically, it shifted away from Saul with an incident with somebody taller than Saul. Anybody know who it is? 
Goliath, the giant. Okay? So the guy taller than Saul kind of shifted uh, Saul's favor away from the people in a way. Is that there was the Philistine giant, the neighboring kind of like tribe of people. They were taunting and were always kind of the thorn in the side of the nation of Israel. And this, this giant like kind of shows up and is in the front of the army taunting the people all the time. Who wants to come out and fight? And Saul was tall, but he, never, he wasn't that tall. And Saul didn't go out and fight. And nobody else did either. But there was a shepherd boy, and you, know, you probably know the story. You could maybe even sing a song with me if you want to. I could teach it to you if you want. But only a boy named David. Only a little sling. Only a boy named David. And I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Somebody could help me. But um, David went to um, uh, and opposed Goliath, took a stone, flung it with a slingshot, and killed him. Okay? And all of a sudden, what happened in that moment uh, was all of the people's pride in their tall king shifted and went to David. And they started chanting, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. That must have stung a little bit for Saul. They were throwing Saul a little bit of a bone, but that was, that was definitely a slight. They were saying, look it, Saul, you've done some amazing things. You're tall. But David killed the giant. David has slain his ten thousands ten times better than you, Saul, little shepherd boy. And in, in that moment in time, the prideful people that wanted the king kind of looked at who was the next kind of exciting person in that moment. And they cheered on David and it set a course of events that led to um, just, a, just a horrible season in the, in the nation of Israel where Saul the king was jealous and enraged and in some way kind of drove him to madness Chasing after and trying to get David because he was just, he was consumed with this jealousy and he was consumed with this. And eventually David does become king and David is, is more in line with the king that God wants for the people. And this story that we're going to read today demonstrates why all of these events that were filled with prideful moments. They were filled with selfishness, ended with an incredible gesture of humility in one way um, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So 2 Samuel chapter 9, after David is king and Saul is dead, here's what takes place. David asked, is there any... 2 Samuel chapter 9, this is verse 1. David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul... Whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake, Saul's son. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? I don't know if that's how it's said, but uh, we're going to go with Ziba. Uh, at, your, at your service, he replied. The king asked, is there still no one alive from the house of Saul whom I can show God's kindness? Uh, 
<laughs> I'm laughing every time I come to Ziba because I know that's completely wrong. <laughs> but uh, Ziba answered the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, It's at the house of uh, Makar, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar in the house of uh, Makar, son of Amiel. When Mesh- Mephibosheth, Son of John, this is not as easy as it looks, people. Um, the son of Saul came to David. He bowed down to pay him honor. David said, At your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore you to all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, uh, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever the Lord, the Lord, the king commands his servants to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like the one of, of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named uh, Mika, and all the members of Ziba's house were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate. At the king's table, he was lame in both feet. When kings come to power, they kill their rivals. That's what they do in this era and time. When kings come to a place where, like, like there is some controversy here, and actually the heir of the throne is Mephibosheth. Kings don't hang out with those people. And in fact, it seems as though, and there's several different indications in the book of Samuel, that there was a few people here that were scattered about that were relatives of Saul that were in hiding and were gone. And you hear what Mephibosheth said when he approached David. He said, you should notice a dead dog like me. He's coming in and he thinks at this moment... He might be dead. And he's like kind of like trying to lay it on pretty thick for David to like be gracious with him. Saul had spent years of his life chasing down and hunting David to kill him. And David recognized that if he followed in the footsteps of Saul and became the type of person that was jealous and proud of anybody else that like came up and had any kind of fame, anybody else that had any status. If he was this type of a person, then he would be, he would be in constant battle time and time again. And so he does a dramatic thing to change the tone. And I think it was very intentional. And I think it was a dramatic moment. And I think it was very thoughtful that David did this. And you see, he's like trying to search for and look for the relatives of Saul to bring him in. I'm positive that the people that were like 
like giving these orders, thought that it was not for kind reasons that David was bringing them in. But David brings this guy in who is lame, who, like, is weak. And he says, this is your place. This is your home. And every day you can sit at my table and you can eat with me and you will be here. Because you know what? You are the heir to the king and we're going to honor what we're going to honor what has gone before, even though Saul was somebody that tried to kill me time and time again. This moment is something that, like, it's, it's a very dramatic act that I think many, all of us could learn from in one way or another. That we could say, how am I going to put to death kind of this, this idea in my head sometimes that I want to, like, I want my own way. How am I going to put to death this prideful spirit that sometimes like just kind of just comes up inside of me? Maybe we need to do something dramatic. Don't don't be fooled. David was an ambitious person. David was somebody that like wanted like wanted to do great things. David was was like ferocious in battle. David did big things. He went and like was willing as a kid to go and face a giant. He, he wasn't like, he didn't want like to not be ambitious and do big things or anything like that. He was somebody that had big dreams and big goals and all of this and wanted to do great things for God. But he knew if he lived like in this place of selfishness where he's constantly, constantly looking over his shoulder, battling every enemy, anyone that like did him wrong in any way whatsoever, that he would constantly be in this fight. And I want you to think about even, put it in your perspective. You're not like battling for the throne. This isn't like Game of Thrones in your life. That's not what you're doing in your life. But you are, you do have times where there's like, there, there, there's that little bit of strife. There's that little bit of a pull. There's that competitive spirit. There's that scorecard, so to speak, that is going on. That, that at some point in time, like, maybe you need to do something dramatic to reset that moment. Maybe you need to do something big and bold in order to stay away from the temptation that we all have in, like, kind of leading towards and going towards pride. Something big and something gracious. And this is what David does. He goes to the person who wrongs him, and he forgives him. You know, in Scripture, Jesus says kind of like some outrageous things a lot of times. When he's talking to people about how you deal with problem people. Jesus says some really outlandish things. Like... When somebody strikes you, turn the other cheek. Outlandish. It's kind of crazy. But he said it. He's saying, someone's harming you, don't harm them back. He says that you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He says outlandish things over and over, and it's all a picture of us setting aside our pride and being willing to be these pe- the people that, that the Bible says over and over, be gracious, be humble. And, and so in our life, we have all kinds of different opportunities and moments 
where it's kind of like we can fall into the trap of me against the world. Like whenever, you know, maybe somebody wrongs us in one way or another, and my pride is hurt. And, like, I feel like I need to, I need to one-up in some way. I want to get in that next word. Sometimes it's with the people that are closest to us. And all of a sudden, like, we're having a conversation, and it turns a little bit ugly, and we decide to use, like, words that we know will harm others. Be different. Do something dramatic. And that's what David does. Instead of saying that, bringing Mephibosheth in and saying, you know what, you're going to die so that you don't take my throne. He says, you can eat at my table. Dramatic. What would it be like if whenever like, you had that moment where like, some of that pride is starting to arise, some of that anger, some of that feeling of, like, I want to get back or, or like, whatever it may be. If you, if you surprised people... With like an act of generosity and kindness and forgiveness. What would happen? What would happen if you went to somebody in a generous way? What would happen if, if like instead of having the same fight with your spouse over and over and over again, the next time when it came up, instead of saying, pointing the finger and explaining why they're wrong, you said, you know what, this is where I was wrong. And that's where we need to start. What would that do? How would that change your relationship? How would that, how would that make an impact? What, like, how, how would that change the culture at, at the place where you work? Where it seems like maybe, maybe there's times where people are doing things that are unjust. Maybe there's times where you're mistreated. Maybe there's times where like, other people are in the wrong. What would it do if you went and like, took the initiative... And like thanked people for the positive things that they were doing. Or just let something go. It would, it would be pretty dramatic. It would change your relationships in a huge, huge way. And this is, this is something that like is kind of like this daily thing that we have to like wrestle with. Is, you know, am I going to be fighting against everyone? Or am I going to put down my pride and be a person of humility? On, on a daily, regular basis, and I want you to even look back to the list that Jonathan Edwards gives us. And it's kind of on the back of your note-taking guide. Um, on the second question, there's that list is included. And think about all of these different ways that we could... We could change the tone of a relationship by choosing humility over pride. The fault finding, the harsh spirit, the superficiality, the defensiveness, presumption before God, the desperation for attention, or neglecting others. There's something in our life that needs to change if we take seriously the message of Jesus Christ and following Christ. And that's what this whole series is about. Because there is, you know, it, if we don't get this right, that this is God's world. And we need to put aside our selfishness. It's hard to even move forward in any way in your spiritual life. John the Baptist, as he was um, preparing the way for Jesus, he got it. 
And I, I don't know if he got it right away, but he, was, he knew what his mission was. He knew that he wasn't Jesus. He wasn't the savior of the world. But he realized he, he had an important part to play in what God was doing in this world, in God's kingdom here on earth. And so John the Baptist came before and paved the way for Jesus. And he went out and he was baptizing people and he was pointing people to the Messiah that was to come, to Jesus. And there's this famous line, and it's something that I want each of us to think about a little bit in, in regards to the subject. That when the time came that he had done kind of his task and it was time for Jesus to take center stage, he says, I must decrease and he must increase. In every one of our lives, that's something that we're called to do. If we're going to take seriously the call of Jesus. God, God's way, God's will, God's kingdom needs to increase. And our agenda, our will, what we want, needs to decrease. That's on a daily level with our with our interactions with people, and that's on a big level when we're thinking about all the big things in our life. God, God's will, God's way must increase. Our will must decrease. If You can almost kind of look at it as a scale. And you can almost like take that and, and use it like as a litmus test for where I'm at and how how much I'm growing closer and closer to God is, you know, is God's like will and way and what God does, is that increasing or is it decreasing? And you can kind of look throughout the years as to like how you're growing closer and closer to God. Is God's will increasing or is it decreasing? I remember multiple moments in my life where it was a crossroads moment and it's really like I said, kind of an entry into, our, am I going to be serious about following God? Is this pride issue? I remember multiple times in my life where decisions have to be made about big life choices. Like, where am I going to live? What job am I going to take? How, you know, all these things that are a big deal. And these kinds of decisions in life, a lot of times, we don't think about this question. How is God going to increase and how am I going to decrease? I mean, sometimes we don't. But I remember multiple times in my life I came to that crossroad moment where, where I was going to ask myself, is it going to be my plan or God's plan right now? And it has to do with finances. It has to do with how you're going to raise your kids. It has to do with your relationship. All of it. Where all of a sudden I have to say, you know what? Am I going to pursue this path for more money or more whatever? Or am I going to do what I feel like God wants me to do and do the right thing no matter what? It's, it's really one of those things in our life that like is kind of, it's going to either hold us back or it's going to set us free in our relationship with God. Are we going to put to death our desire to, to rule our own lives and completely be in control and that pride that takes over 
in our life. We're going to let God take control. I invite you to pray with me. And reflect on this dramatic moment in this story that David, uh, David kind of started his reign as king with. A gracious act, a selfless act. And it's possible in this room, some of us maybe have a person that might come to mind. Maybe a person that we've been battling with and struggling with, and maybe... It just hasn't even been working out, and there's been conflict that has happened time and time again. Can you set down your pride and start over? Do something different? For some of us, there may even be kind of like these big life decisions like I was talking about, where... We have choices to make on what what we're going to pursue with our life. Are we going to keep pursuing big goals or status or whatever it may be? We're going to put to death those things. Say, God, have your way. I think many times it, it applies to kind of our relationship with our church. Where we say, you know, is it, is it going to be about what a church can provide me? Or is it going to be what I can provide God, your kingdom, and, your, and how I can help? We live in a selfie world. And we all can get caught up in it where we're just focused on what our own goals So take a moment right now just to self-reflect. Think about those ways where pride creeps in in your own life. And ask God to forgive you and help you and empower you for something else.